The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. today a passage which, as I'll say, does not seem perhaps like it concerns items of the highest importance, but everything in Scripture is important. So let's see what it is God may be saying today. John 19, follow along. I'm going to read verses 23 to 27, and this comes right after Pilate has made that declaration that Jesus was king of the Jews, and he insisted to the objectors, what I had written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This is God's own holy word, true in every part in every word and every line. Many of you realize that on the last Sunday of each month, we here at Westminster offer the opportunity for folks to bring clothing that you are no longer primarily using, hopefully things that are in good condition for potential use by others, and to leave those things for pickup by Water Street Ministries. I often look at the area out here under the steeple, the old narthex where those things are brought, and I I think some must wander through that day and think, good grief, they keep their trash inside because here are all these plastic bags and boxes and it isn't exactly the tidiest looking thing. And I think another idea as I look at those things, well, here's a, you know, a pile of things that would probably well fill up the back of a pickup truck or a small van. And I think, well, this is a relatively small scale ministry for a big congregation among the many things that we do for our community and ways to reach out in practical, uh, you know, outreach to people as well as gospel outreach. I think, well, you know, all right, uh, this is a rather small item. And yet, then I think, well, wait a minute, we do this every month. And if you took all of the clothing piled up there once a month and found a vehicle to transport it, you would need a vehicle with many tires on the truck. 
probably a semi to handle a year's supply. It's pretty amazing what happens in that ministry. Well, when four Roman soldiers stripped Jesus of all his garments at the cross, the pile that was left was pitifully small, constituting everything that he owned. Jesus didn't go around with a shopping cart or a big knapsack or a duffel bag to carry his various possessions. Everything he owned was probably with him, and if his garments had pockets, they were in those pockets or perhaps in a purse of some kind that he may have carried, as people did in those days. And think of it. Why would his used clothes be so important that God's Word would have this short paragraph talking about the disposal of them unless every detail in God's Word has some measure of importance. We know from reading other passages, Old Testament and New, that the Israelite faith, faith of the Old Testament in Jehovah, was a faith that had a particular horror about personal nudity. If people in those days could begin to grasp the extensiveness of the horrible epidemic of pornography in our day, if they could even begin to grasp high school students sending naked pictures of one another on their phones, they would be speechless. We read that Jesus Christ was stripped of his garments to die naked on the cross. Now, we're usually a little embarrassed to mention that, let alone develop the subject very far. Every artist who's ever depicted the cross in a painting or a drawing or an etching always, just about always, has the modest element of some kind of a loincloth on him. But we know from historic reality that that was not provided. The shame that Jesus bore was primarily spiritual, of course. For him to be ashamed and bear shame on the cross was mostly the bearing of the degrading, huge truckload of human sin, the mountain of human sin that was dumped upon him who didn't know what sin was from personal experience before that. Spiritual shame. But yet, there was also his physical shame. His body had to experience what his soul was experiencing as he died with no covering on him at all, hanging under a hot Middle Eastern sun, probably quite close within sight of the Damascus gate of Jerusalem where people passed by on the road. If you would glance ahead a few verses in John, you'll see that next time, Lord willing, we will come to the actual event of Jesus' death. And you would surely say, well, that's really important. That's dramatic. That's the climax that it's all been aiming at. So, Pastor, why wouldn't you get to that? Why would you stop and consider verses 23 to 27? I ask myself this question. Is this text actually important enough to deal with? But then I didn't have to ponder over it too long because all God's Word is important. And here's a preliminary to that great event that we'll consider next time, if we're able. Here we see 
soldiers gambling for the clothing of Christ. And then we see him, and by the way, this is the only gospel that treats these two things. This, this material is unique to John, not contradicting anything else. It's just the others don't tell it. John was an eyewitness. He tells it. That the soldiers gambled for the clothing, and then this exchange, these words from the cross, as Jesus assigned his mother to the care of John himself, the author. John calls himself here the disciple whom he loved. That's the way he always refers to himself. He doesn't call himself by name. Even though these things might seem trivial compared to what's just coming, I would ask us to pay attention. Because in this passage, I believe we see Jesus Christ stripped of his garments in preparation to clothe every believer with the blessed righteousness covering us in every possible way before God. And we further see him introducing something here as the loving son opens the doors to an everlastingly new family of God into which he inducts his mother and he wants to induct all of us who acknowledge him as Lord. Two points today. First of all, looking at verses 23 and 24, I ask you to realize how Scripture shows us so many times that God is in the details. You've heard that saying enough times in this world. God is in the details. He's in these details of some clothes cast off. It's apparent that in the first century, as a bonus for doing extra duty, these squads of four soldiers were allowed to collect whatever belongings a, uh, a person to be executed, a victim to be executed, would have on them. Maybe they had a little money, something valuable possibly, certainly their clothing. Now, just the clothing isn't going to amount to all that much, and usually people being crucified are not aristocrats who are wearing fine, wonderful garments that are going to bring a lot of money in the used clothing market. But these soldiers were allowed to take whatever they could get, and it would supplement possibly a few dollars to their pay if they could take it down to the pawnbroker. We don't know precisely what items of clothing Jesus had, but there's pretty good knowledge of first century culture to know what it probably was. Probably, first of all, a pair of sandals. Secondly, some kind of a head covering. You don't usually see pictures drawn of Jesus with anything on his head, but that would have been the norm for life in those days, a turban or some type of head covering. Thirdly, a belt or a sash for his waist. Fourthly, some kind of outer coat, more like perhaps a kind of blanket that might be draped over the shoulders. You usually see it drawn as a diagonally worn piece that would be wrapped around at night for warmth if you were sleeping out of doors or pulled over your head if it was raining, your outdoor protection. But then there was, fifthly, the main garment, a robe of some type, probably not too amazingly different from what the robe I'm wearing. And this is a particularly fine one because we don't know where it came from. I would speculate possibly some admirer of Jesus, someone for whom he worked a healing, wanted to give him a gift. And they gave him this very nicely woven robe that had few seams in it. It was made by a, a master seamstress. This fifth piece, they either would tear in four parts or one of them would get it. 
and they decided it wouldn't have much value if they ripped it up, so they gambled for it, a dice game. Soldiers probably had dice on them or some means of gambling in every age of history, I would think. Now, Psalm 22 comes into the picture here. If you know Psalm 22, you know it's a wonderful text. If you don't know it at all, you should read it. It's sometimes called the Psalm of the Cross, not because a cross is specifically mentioned in it. It is not. But it's a Psalm of David in which David describes the appointed one of God. We think he had himself in mind. It's certainly a a lot of what he was writing there anyway. But it looks beyond himself too. Uh, Someone appointed by God who's surrounded by vicious foes attacking him hemming him in, persecuting him, harming him. Now, Psalm 22 was written 1,000 years before Calvary, and that's why it becomes amazing. Psalm 22, 1 opens with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know Jesus said that on the cross, and he said that surely in conscious repetition of Psalm 22, which he knew in his memory. So, he, was, he knew he was referring to Psalm 22. But then there are things in there that are not consciously constructed at all. Verse 16 of Psalm 22 says this, They have pierced my hands and my feet. Maybe some kind of a poetic phrase that wasn't literally happening to David, but he was describing pains that others were bringing against him as if they were crucifying him. We don't think David was ever crucified. What exactly David meant doesn't matter as much as what it meant later. And then this one in verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. How may we account for this except that God is the spokesman of his word? The spokesman from David's era to fulfillments in the life of Jesus the Messiah, the greater king than David, 1,000 years later. A rather inconsequential matter, a pile of discarded clothes. And yet here it becomes a standing testimony to the sovereign control of of God over the cross of Jesus and over all details of human history. It bolsters with its prophetic fulfillment the truthfulness of the Scriptures in every detail. You cannot convince me, no matter how hard you would try, that four tough Roman soldiers, four pagan Romans, not Israelites, casually rolling the dice beneath the groaning figure of Jesus on a tree or cross had any consciousness whatsoever that what they were doing was conforming to the Hebrew Scriptures, which they had never read and were not aware of. And so it becomes a figure of amazement. Ordinary, ungodly people, not considering that they were in any way instruments in the hand of God, showing in this trivial performance the truth of the Scriptures of God. In fact, we know, and I could take time to list them, but I will not, some 20 highly specific prophecies like this that are fulfilled within the 24 hours of the event of the cross. Amazing. 
All details of the death of Christ conform to the plan of God the Father. God was the planner. God was the executor of the plan. And his word shows us that God is indeed in the details. He's in the details of our lives, too. Times when we are not conscious of it. Times when it would appear that everything is going in an absolutely opposite direction. That the the sky is falling on us. Or the house is falling on us. People would have looked at what was happening to Jesus and say, where's his God? And they did say that, didn't they? If you're such a great guy, come down off the cross. If God cares about you, he'll save you. God didn't bring him down off the cross. And yet God was operative and fulfilling his word. Does that give you any confidence that God is in the details of your life? When you can see it the least, as a matter of fact, he's working things out according to his plan. Well, secondly, I bring up from this rather short text today, verses 25 to 27, that completely switch for something else that happened there that I call new family bonds enjoyed by Christian believers. God brings people of faith in Christ into a new family. Interesting that there were four soldiers involved in putting Jesus to death. There were also four women who remained there out of steadfast love and one male disciple out of the remaining 11. Judas is dead by now. But one was there. He's not named, but it was John, the author, called the disciple whom Jesus loved. There they stood, those five together, Mary, the human mother of Jesus, her sister, who we believe her name was Salome, two other Marys, one called the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. You need to get the picture of this strange, rather bizarre scene. Here are the soldiers, rough men, cursing, gambling, laughing probably as they gambled for these clothes. Here are the temple leaders distinguished in their elaborate gowns. You know, Jesus was naked, but they were dressed to the T with all kinds of bands and ribbons and whatever on their garments with showing how important they were. And what were they doing? Railing at him, mocking him, as were some of the passers-by, casual people reading the sign, King of the Jews, are you kidding me? You could hear people screeching and hooting to one another. And here in the midst of it all is a unique woman who we met early in two Gospels, Matthew and Luke. As God presented a wonderful, amazing call to her, telling her she would be the vessel, her body would be the vessel, for a son to be born who was the son of highest God, not born of a human husband, born miraculously of the Holy Spirit. Here she was. She's been in the background all through the life of Jesus. Here and there, she's, she's just surfaced a little bit, but not much. She's been there. And now look at where she is. Watching her young adult son hanging naked, blood running down him, going through every kind of agony and groaning. You who are mothers, you get the idea. The worst thing a mother could possibly, conceivably, have to witness. 
You know, Jesus was eight days old, we're told in Luke, when they went to the temple to dedicate him as the ritual prescribed. And remember Simeon, the old man who met them, kind of a prophet? Simeon spoke great things about what this eight-day-old baby was going to become, and then he turned to Mary and said, but a sword will pierce through your soul. That sword was ground in and turned and twisted right now in the soul of Mary, his mother. And then here's Jesus, and again, realize he's in the moment of his utter anguish. I don't know about you, but if I was going through one-tenth of the physical pain Jesus was going through, I am not particularly watching out for people around me and thinking about what their troubles are. But I'm not Jesus. He was. He was looking at his mother and his friend John and these other women, and he was compassionate to them. He sensed, here are, here are those I love, and they're hurting. Maybe I can say something that would minister to them. That's the character of Jesus, seeing the needs of others even in his own extremity. In the time when most of us would be all isolated and turned in on ourselves, he's turned out because he's the sympathizer extraordinaire, the good shepherd of great compassion. We know that Mary's husband, Joseph, must have died before Jesus became an adult. That's not spoken to. He's just not there at any time beyond Jesus' childhood, and we assume he's dead. So Mary was a widow. She's been a widow for some time now, years. But she had this marvelous older son who would give her attention and sympathy and care. He would help her and see that she had shelter and food and things that she needed. But now she's losing him. Now, some of you know, and I'll remind those who don't, that Matthew 13, 55 says Jesus had four half-brothers and his sisters, plural. So Mary, through, with Joseph, must have had six children at least. Sisters could mean more than two. These are the half-brothers of Jesus. They're Joseph's children. Sad to say, there are those that teach that Mary never had any other children. I guess their Bible has a hole in the page on Matthew 13, 55, because those four brothers are even named there. So Mary had four sons. Wow, that's a lot more than many people would. And you would think, well, why did John have to be appointed a caretaker when there are four sons who naturally ought to do that? Here's the best reasons we can give for that. There are two, and I think they're adequate when considered together. Number one, we know from Matthew 13 that the brothers of Jesus were not believers in him. They rejected the idea of him being a special appointed one from God. They certainly did not think he was the Messiah. They even spoke to him critically about that whole, whole idea. Later, they were found in the early church among believers, and one of them was James who wrote a fine letter in the New Testament. But now they're not believers. Another issue is they probably still lived basically back in Nazareth. Where's Mary? Jerusalem. John, we understand, had some roots in Jerusalem and apparently some kind of a home there because verse 27 says he took her to his own home. So he could, better than the four in Nazareth, meet the immediate need of Mary, a place to sleep a table to sit down at, a place to be comforted. 
Those are at least practical reasons why Jesus assigned his mother to the care of John. But I think there's a greater issue here. And the greater issue isn't just practical care. It's the fact that here Jesus is inaugurating and hinting at the altogether new family of God that was coming about and would result from his death and resurrection. That all those who had a common Lord, who looked to Christ as that Lord, and had a unique relationship of salvation in him, knew they were ransomed and redeemed and saved by him, now belong to each other just as they belong to him. And they had ties with each other that were really more important than any mere ties of physical ancestry. In the eyes of our Savior, the richest, most enduring relationship a human being can have after relationship to him is our relationship to others who are redeemed by Christ. Why? Because that's an eternal relationship. I've had wonderful Christian fellowship with people in other congregations before I came to be your pastor. Now I have wonderful Christian fellowship with all of you, many of you. Sometimes too many of you. I can't remember all your names. I'm interested a few of you here know that uh, a couple, just as an illustration, a couple that were very close to my wife and myself in Maryland when we were down there 20 years ago. Gary was an elder on my session there. Dottie, his wife, wonderful, warm Christian servant. We love these folks, and some of you, few of you here know them. They are moving to Quarryville to come and retire there. We have found out they're coming soon. Now, I'm going to go greet those folks who I haven't seen in more than 10 years, and they're going to get a bear hug. I hope I don't break them. People we love dearly. We've served the church together. They could be my brother and my sister. They share a bond with me that my own unbelieving brother does not fulfill the bond that I would have with Gary. Christ creates new families in this world, a whole new society. Now, he doesn't tell us to go and forsake our blood relatives and say, don't have anything more to do with them. Of course not. In fact, if they also know Christ, wow, then we have a blood relationship and a spiritual relationship. What could be better? But if they are one with us only by birth and ancestry in this world, the Scripture warns the possibility could exist that they could become like our enemies, not understanding us, thinking we're weird, rejecting the spiritual nature of our knowledge of Christ. Matthew 10, 36 has Jesus say that where faith is not a bond of reality in a home, a man's enemies can become those of his own household. It doesn't have to be that way, but it is sometimes, as many of you well know. Matthew 12, 48, he adds, whoever does the will of my father, that one is my brother and sister and mother. You see, we enter this new society that Jesus is creating. Later, it's called the church, of course. We enter this new society through a literal new birth of the Holy Spirit, which puts us into a new relationship one to another. That's what Jesus was introducing his mother to. John, the disciple, could care for her and be to her much what Jesus was. Not everything Jesus was, but much of it spiritually as well as physically. 
Those who look to the cross of Christ as the defining event in their lives look to this new relationship with others who have a similar faith. And there's a new family. We all know what it is to be forgiven, and hopefully we are bound to forgive one another. We're not bound in a relationship of competition like in the business world today where you joust and posture and, you know, try to get noticed and get a position of advantage. You don't have to do that with your Christian brother and sister. You're accepted by that person. Friendships, prayer, compassion, moral examples, mentoring, so many good things God gives us through this new family as we see the principles of Christianity worked out in other lives, and those lives come alongside and comfort us, and we can comfort them. What a gift is this new society, this new family of God. We should stop and think often of what it means that we in Christ belong to one another. Now, there's a short thing I just have to clear away that's a a sidebar point, maybe you would say, to this issue involving Mary. I think that here in this text, as simple and short as it is, we have a helpful revelation from God that puts Mary in a correct place and wipes away many fictional notions about her. You know what I mean, I think. That there are those that would make Mary into some kind of sinless, nearly divine being. We, we spent years in uh, New York State living around the corner from a big, huge, brick, immaculate conception church. My son, Paul, grew up playing with best friends who were members of that church. And I only found out maybe five years ago, we were discussing the phrase, the immaculate conception. And Paul thought that applied to the virgin birth. I said, no, Paul, that applies to the notion, entirely unfounded, that Mary was born sinless. He didn't know that. All the years that he past that big church. He thought it was talking about Christ's immaculate conception. No, no, no. Rome says Mary is sinless. Mary's the mediator with her son. Mary can bring you special favor. Perhaps her son is so busy that you have to go through her. But what do we see here? Mary is not self-sufficient. She has to be assigned to care and comfort and provision here on this earth. She is, may we say it, it's true, a sinner who needed a Savior. She was never intended to be some kind of superhuman mediator. Don't give her a role that the Bible does not give her. Mary had a difficult enough task without our loading things on her that the Scripture doesn't sanction. She had to make the transition, in a sense, giving up her whole earthly notion of who Jesus was as her son, and learn to relate to him in a whole new way as her Lord and her Savior and her King, a mother having to completely transition in her relationship. That was not easy. Well, let me conclude this way today. Different ideas of coming together here, but I'd conclude with this. When Adam sinned in Eden, he was, we're told in Scripture, he was instantly conscious of what? Adam and Eve both. They knew that they were naked. People think that's a strange kind of story, and people regard it as some sort of harmless myth or something. It's not a myth. God is teaching us 
they were conscious that they were naked. They never had that consciousness. They didn't need the consciousness before. They didn't know what shame was before. Suddenly, they wanted to cover themselves. And what you see in Genesis that God is teaching us is that he would provide them with a cover, which he did. And he intended a cover that was far more adequate than the animal skins that they made into garments and wore. But then you see, with that background, in the one that's called second Adam, Jesus, he died as our substitute. And he who never knew what shame was or had any reason to before suddenly was plunged into the theater of shame, physical as well as spiritual. He died on the cross, stripped naked, symbolizing the fact that he bore the terrible curse of the deep shame that you and I put upon him. John Calvin wrote this. I'll let it be the last word. Christ was stripped of his garments so he might clothe us in righteousness. His body was exposed to the worst insults of men so we might appear in glory before the judgment seat of God, unashamed. Praise God. Our Father, thank you that even in these details of what happened around the cross, we see your word being proved true by ancient prophecy. We see that whole theme of shame and guilt and covering coming together. And we see that new family that you've created for us by your people bound together with us, trusting in Christ our Savior. Thank you, Father, for your word. It truly comforts and instructs. Help us to walk in its way by faith. Amen.